Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Here we go. All right. Welcome, everyone, to our Table Zoom worship gathering here Sunday, October the 4th. And we're really glad that you're with us, whether you're here in our Zoom platform today, like many of you are, or if you join us later on through our podcast, we're glad that you've taken the time to join with us here as we, um, well, we turn a corner into a fall series that for the next four weeks is going to keep us in um, the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph found in, well, basically Joseph is the last third or so of the book. And that's where we'll be turning our attention specifically to Genesis 37. So I'll give you a little bit of heads up. You can uh, start making your way over there. Um, And as I said, this uniform series directs us to the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph and his brothers for the next four weeks. And it's a long and familiar story. And as usual, there are several ways we can approach these First Testament stories. Um, We can we can treat it as a wisdom story um, because that fits the, the genre of the ancient Near Eastern literature. So looking for kernels of wisdom that we can then pull from these stories. And we certainly can uh, look at it as a family drama. Um, If you, some of you are old enough to remember a man by the name of Bill Moyers. He was a famous um, news journalist. And his famous quip is that Genesis is the story of the world's most famous dysfunctional family. They put the fun in dysfunction. And we could also read it, and I think the Uniform Series is going to encourage us to do this, as a story of God's providence. And that's what I think the text is going to encourage us to do by the time we get to the end of the story. But that's the end of the story. But specifically for the next four weeks, the editors of this series want us to reflect on the way that this story illustrates the meaning of love. And so that's what we're calling our fall series, the meaning of love. And I think in this case, this week's section, uh, we're going to see the meaning of love mostly by its absence or its distortion. And this will be the only time I think that we look at it um, specifically from that perspective. And since we're jumping into something new, um, I thought maybe it would be wise for me to give you just a little bit of context before we dive into the story and do our 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 usual perusal of the text and asked good questions of it. Um, The second half of the book of Genesis uh, contains what we might call the Abraham or the Abrahamic cycle. You know, God calls Abraham to go to the land that I'll show you in Genesis 15, 16, and 17 is that story. And then the drama shifts to the, the promise and eventual birth of Isaac And then his near sacrifice that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, James referenced that, and that's in Genesis 19 through 22. And then there are stories that feature Isaac after his father uh, attempted to sacrifice him and their relationship was forever broken. There are these stories that feature Isaac that are kind of a bridge between Abraham and Jacob, and that's Genesis 23 and 24. And then the stories of Jacob come in Genesis 25 and 26 from his birth as one half of the twin set of Jacob and Esau. And then it kind of follows Jacob's, I don't know if I could call it this, I'll call it his subsequent life of crime, 
because I don't know what else you would call it, you know, stealing from your brother, lying to your father, then becoming a fugitive. That's all Genesis 27 and 28. And then in Genesis 29 through 31, Jacob meets up with an even more accomplished criminal in his uncle Laban. And those stories there of how he gets his wives and all that is 29 to 31. And so by the time we arrive at Genesis 32, we have Jacob and his famous wrestling with the angel um, that we know of as a Christophany and having his name changed to Israel and that promise in Genesis 32. And followed with what we would some would say is a reconciliation of sorts with Esau in Genesis 33. And now we're just a few chapters from where we'll be focusing our attention this morning. And those stories that I just kind of set out to you are probably familiar to most of you, especially if you grew up in the church and Sunday school, those are, those are things that you would have studied often. But typically all of the teaching resources that I know skip um, the events of chapter 34. Um, we call it nicely, I'm going to call it the fiasco at Shechem, but there was the, the sexual assault on one of, uh, one of Joseph, I'm sorry, um, one of Jacob's daughters and the brothers coming to her defense and tricking and then there was mass murder. It, it's, a, it's an ugly chapter. Um, and so by the time we get to chapter 37, we've pretty much figured out that this family, this dysfunctional family, there's a depth of painful backstories that goes back generations. And so even when we are introduced to something like Shechem, which by the way, Shechem is going to play a part in our story today. Um, and Shechem is an important place in the biblical narrative, especially the first Testament narrative, because a lot of things take place there. And like, if we were going to write this drama up as like a, um, either a dark comedy or some sort of a, a weird drama thing, this idea of Shechem and the introduction of Shechem is kind of like the spooky music that would play in the background. It's kind of telling us that, you know, something's getting ready to happen here because every time we find ourselves at Shechem, something terrible seems to be happening. So, I've already told you what happened to Dinah there in chapter 34, but we also are going to find in our story later that Joseph is sold by his brothers here. And then later we find out that the kingdom of David was divided at Shechem. That's when the northern and southern kingdoms take place. And then there's a series of other things. So whenever we hear that word Shechem or we encounter that city Shechem in the story, I think it kind of functions a lot like spooky music. Do you get what I mean by that? That spooky music that's kind of like, okay, this is not going to be a good place. And oh, by the way, it's also the place that the spies returned with the bad report about the promised land. So it's this continual kind of spooky music in the background and that's gonna show up in our text today. So there's this depth of painful backstory going generations back. And now that story is about ready to get another episode. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 37, all of that leading up to, um, I'm gonna call this, this study today, a tattletale, a robe and dreams. A tattletale, a robe and dreams. But before we jump into the text, would you join me in a word of prayer as we um, invite ourselves to be made aware of the presence of God who um, is with us through the Holy Spirit now. Would you do that with me? Father God, we thank you 
for this opportunity to be together as your Jesus family, our Jesus family together. We have an opportunity to engage in a story, in a text that's probably familiar to many of us, and yet we're here to investigate, to see, and then to apply into our own lives what we learn about love as it's being displayed here. We pray that you would make us aware of your Holy Spirit's presence among us, that she would be made aware of us, and that would guide our discussion, for we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, everybody ready to dive in? We're back into our stories, and so stories are always fun because they invite all kinds of open interpretation because, hey, it's a story. So for the sake of our um, recording here, I'll go ahead and read, and we're going to kind of break down chapter 37 into three parts, and we'll, we'll get through it in time, I promise. And I'm going to start with the first 11 verses. So um, as I read these 11 verses, I want you to be listening for um, maybe some clues or some ideas um, that you could use to describe the family dynamics of Jacob's family in this first part of the passage. Uh, so listen for things that give you a clue as to what the family dynamics are like in Jacob's family, all right? Everybody understand what you're listening for? And maybe make note of those, and we can share them for just a moment when I finish, all right? Genesis 37, beginning of verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, where his father was an immigrant, this is the account of Jacob's descendants. Joseph was 17 years old and tended the flock with his brothers. While he was helping the sons of Bilah and Ziphah, his father's wives, Joseph told their father unflattering things about them. Now, verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born when Jacob was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe, and when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and couldn't even talk nicely to him. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stalk got up and stood upright, while your stalks gathered around it and bowed down to my stalk. His brother said to him, will you really be our king and rule over us? So they hated him even more because of the dreams he had told them. Now, verse nine, then Joseph had another dream and he described it to his brothers. I've just dreamed again. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he described it to his father and brothers, his father scolded him and said to him, what kind of dreams have you dreamed? Am I and your mother and your brothers supposed to come and bow down to the ground in front of you? Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father took careful note of the matter. So the story begins with a formula announcing that this is a family story. So what are some of the dynamics that you picked up on as you listened and or followed along? Some of the dynamics. Jealous. So there's certainly jealousy. It's repeated multiple times. I think maybe four or five times in those 11 verses that word comes up. What else? The father's favoritism. Uh, you, you see that sense of favoritism from the father to Joseph, right? Jacob. 
Hatred. Say again, Joni. Hatred. Yeah, they used that word hatred. They hated their brother. Good. What else? What other dynamics do you see? Joseph was saying unflattering things about the two wives to his father. Yeah, so he's a little, <laughs> in, well, we'll just leave it. I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to like color our, color him ahead of time, but he does seem to be like that little bratty kid, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Others, impressions, the, the family, how would you describe the family dynamics? Anyone else? How would you describe the family dynamics here? All right, let me ask you a question this way. Those things that we've identified, does this tell us anything about the story or make a difference to the way we understand it? Does it tell us anything about the story or make a difference as to the way we understand it? I kept, I keep thinking back to the dad also, and that it's very obvious that the sons are being jealous or hateful, or it's very obvious that <clears throat> Joseph is being a tattletale, but at the same time, how is the dad managing all the different wives and managing all those relationships and managing his reactions to his sons? That seems to be not done well either. Well, that's a good or even attempted to as far as we can tell yeah and that's a good observation we have to remember that joseph is the eldest child of rachel and that was jacob's favorite wife if you want to call it that the wife of his love the one he fell in love with and his older brothers joseph's older brothers are the sons of leah jacob's first but less favorable wife and then you add in the concubines and everything else yeah so that preference for joseph I think it's hard for us to not recognize that as a thread that's going to weave its way through the entire story. Does that seem like a fair statement? But isn't he, um, it's basically the same thing that he experienced too with Jacob and Esau, right? So he was kind of the favorite. And so he's just continuing the pattern that he saw and experienced himself. Right. He was the, yes, he was the favorite of his mother. So yeah, you've got this generational effect going on exactly well abraham did the same thing he favored isaac over ishmael yep. this is just the next the next episode in the saga of painful backstories right that go back generations of dysfunction right absolutely well in in joseph's defense okay um in in his dreams he and his brothers were the same things uh, he, he just had everybody bowing down to him. It, it wasn't like he called them scum or anything. They were also sheaves along with him and stars. They were stars. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's certainly true. And we'll dig into that. We'll definitely dig into that um, as we work our way through here. So at the outset, would we describe Jacob as a loving father based on what we know about him from these verse, these first 11 verses? Why or why not? How would you describe that, 
We just I would say him. that Jacob seemed more like a stranger. He seemed like they were talking about him like, okay, our father was this, our father was that, instead of how you usually talk about your father. Yeah, so there's not that that familial, uh, comfortable language, yeah? He doesn't seem to be the type of father that's unifying his family because he's allowing all of these things to go along. And so he's not... Um, creating this loving relationship between everyone in his family to make sure that they exist in harmony. Yeah. And we're told to me, straight up. Go ahead. To me, he seems too self-absorbed. He always, you know, oh, woe is me. My life is so hard and, and all that. I think he was a little too self-absorbed. So do you think his son was, his favorite son might've been a little self-absorbed too? Could be. <laughs> So we're told that Jacob, that Jacob favors Joseph. What example do we see of this in the text? I mean, we, he says it, but what example in these 11 verses, what do we see? This might be a little bit tip, more difficult to pick up, but where do we see it? The special oh. robe that he made him. Ooh, that special robe. Yeah, that, depending on your your. Uh, translation, that coat of many colors. Um, I mean, that might be another spooky music thing, if I could use it that way, this, this garment in verse three. Um, some have translated King James, called it the coat of many colors, uh, long robe with sleeves. The challenge is that in Hebrew, the meaning is a little bit unclear. It, 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 you know, it could be just a coat or a tunic. That's the literal word for it but it comes from a word that means palm of the hands and sole of the feet. So it basically, the idea is that it's, it would be hard to do work in clothing like that. In other words, it could be seen as this coat exempted Joseph from being, having to do the chores because he's got this fancy coat on that covers his palms, goes all the way to his feet. It's not working garb. It's garb of those who are being, you know, exempted from that. And certainly, if, if that's how we're meant to uh, understand that coat, it wouldn't endear him to his brothers, right? He's supposed to be helping them tend the flock. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, they're going to be literally dozens and dozens of miles away, and he's nowhere around. Um Interestingly, I told you, I think it's a little bit of some spooky music too, because there's only one other place in the Bible where this garment, this language for a garment is used. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where Tamar is wearing one. And if you remember the story of Tamar, that's not a happy one. And so again, here's that music playing. It's like, okay, these people are wearing these, this robe and something good Something bad is about to happen to them because the both times we see it used, something bad. I don't know exactly um, if that's what we're meant to see, but certainly the clothing and his clothing of his son in such a way that it looked as though, it, it appears as though he was exempt from chores certainly shows that favoritism. Was there anything else that you saw that shows that favoritism? Anyone? 
What did his dad ask him to do? Or maybe it's implied in the text. Maybe it's not, but it's potentially implied in the text. What was his job? What did his dad send him out to do? It's implied there. He comes back with what? His dad sent him out to check on his brothers and bring a report back. Yeah, so he's audit he's kind of created a hierarchy, right? Where the youngest, not the oldest, the youngest is the one who's going out and coming back. And that maybe is the, the story beginning its dark turn, if you want to call it that. So it may have started out innocuous, but now it kind of turns dark because he brings back to his father a bad report of them. And my impression is that it's the other brothers that do all the work and that Joseph is allowed to, to get out of work by his father. That's true. That's certainly true. So he, we don't know why, no reason is given for why his father sends him out or if his father, I mean, we're implying that his father did that because he comes back and gives a report. Maybe he just take, Joseph just takes that on himself. But either way, do you get the sense that the father is not 100%, Jacob, that is, is not 100% comfortable with the character of his older sons and that they're doing, they're being responsible for his flocks? Do you think there's some doubt in his mind potentially? Anyone? Yes. <laughs> Any reasons that pop up in your head, maybe that as to why that might why he might be a bit suspicious of their moral character? Wouldn't it be because Joseph is coming back and telling these unflattering stories? So depending upon what he's saying when he's going back, would give the impression in Jacob's mind about what's going on. It's definitely coloring his opinion. But I'm not sure they need a lot of help because remember I just told you about gently about what happens in Genesis 34, where they, you know, in quote unquote, standing up for their sister, which you could argue really wasn't um, about protecting her. It was about the fact that they weren't going to get the dowry because of the way he took care of that. And their response to that was to get the whole family that was involved uh, drunk. And then when they were uh, left in their hangover in the middle of the night, they came in and literally slaughtered them, murdered the entire family, including um, the husband or the, the lover of their sister. And so it shouldn't be any surprise, to me, it shouldn't be a surprise that dad is wondering, did I really raise these children? Because that, to me, would have, right? That's a, that's a serious moral challenge, right? Am I wrong there? To assume that his dad, the dad might, have some questions about his sons? I'm not sure if he wasn't more concerned about, hey, how, how is this going to affect me? And I, I want to settle here. I want to live here. I don't want to be wandering around like daddy and father Abraham and, you know, granddaddy Abraham and all that. Right. And, uh, this is going to put a monkey wrench in, in his living conditions. True. Yeah. So you, I think we can make a case that Joseph should have kept his dreams to himself so that he wouldn't antagonize his brothers. I think you could make that case. I, I suppose there are people who might make the case that say something else. But 
I think we can make the case that Joseph should have kept the dreams to himself, considering we know what we know about the family dynamic, right? Do you think that Joseph should have kept the revelation that God gave him to himself for the sake of peace in the family? Or do you think he did well to declare it to the family? What do you think? I think we can make a case either way, but what do you think? I think that being the favorite, he's been allowed to have a certain amount of freedom and reign. And so in his mind, it doesn't make a difference because he has this favor anyway. So he's just going to use that to his benefit. think others should he have kept it to himself to me there's times when god reveals something to me that it's not time to go rattling it off to everybody i i need to i, I don't know i may maybe i need him to help work it out more in me before i go declaring it or not but, but a lot, you know, he wasn't very, he didn't practice good discretion. He was 17. I see Lee smiling over there. Are you thinking, Lee, that, that if the first dream was a mistake, the second dream was really a big mistake? Well, no, I'm, I'm more thinking if, if he didn't pipe up, the next event wouldn't have happened. And then... Oh, oh, so you're, I see you're not, that's not fair. You're reading ahead in the story. No, I know. Yeah, he, know, we all know the rest of the story, right? So that's set in motion, right? The thing that brings him down to Egypt, which positions him in the place. Yes, yes, I get all that. Yeah, I agree. Um, if, if you were Joseph, would you have told your brothers and parents about this dream? Me? No. Why? Um... I probably would have been able to read the room a little bit better than Joseph uh, based on my personality, but so yeah, I probably wouldn't have said anything. I would have played pretty close to the chest on that one. But to go along with what Johannes was saying, he's been allowed to do this. To some extent, he doesn't know any better. He hasn't been brought up to read the room. He's been brought up uh, just... Yeah, I being served to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah you're, you're special, so you could do whatever you want. Yeah. I would have enjoyed poking the bear myself. Meaning I would like to needle the brothers. Just, uh, you know, poke them. <laughs> so is that why you suppose Joseph told his family? Do you think that there was that I'm going to I'm going to needle you? In other words, do you read this as an innocent like I'm a 70 year old kid who can't read the room. So I'm just gonna tell you everything that happens. Or do you think there was more to it? More of like Phil was saying, I'm gonna just just poke him one more time about how, how special I am. I think his dream and when he was telling them is just um, exhibiting to them, see, I've already had this position. I've been operating this way. And look, I had this dream that proves it. Ooh, okay. So you see it as a validation of his sense of specialness, if you can use that language. I don't know if that's good English or not. Luther, you allow it? Specialness? He's smiling. Eh, I'll allow it. <laughs> he gives me the thumbs up. I'll allow it. What do you think Joseph was hoping to accomplish in telling the, the dreams? 
I think that he was trying to kind of bring some harmony between him and his brother. He's like, okay, here, here's this vision. Let me see. Here, now you understand. Now you understand my attitude. So let's kind of kind of mellow out towards you. No longer this kind of strained relationship. Let's kind of bring this to an equal footing. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, we're all sheaves. We're just arranged a slightly differently, right? The circle around. It's like older brother to younger siblings. Yeah, you're older. We're all the same, but you're still older. He's not, obviously yeah. not the older brother. Right. Why was the second dream potentially even more offensive than the first to the family? Anybody want to pick this out? This is an East, Eastern culture versus Western culture thing. What do we see in the second that's different from the first? Uh, the the dad is bowing down as well. So the parental units, right? The mom and the dad and all the family units are bowing down. That's, yeah, that's not acceptable in that culture, right? This is, this is the similar culture that Jesus tells the story of the of the, the prodigal son that we commonly call the prodigal son, where the son basically slaps his dad in the face. That's exactly what this is, which I find interesting because notice as we get to the end there, um, it says that Jacob took careful note of this matter. Now he responds, right, um, to that second dream. And he basically says, I mean, if you were, if you were going to paraphrase Jacob's response when he hears the the second dream, how would you how would you kind of summarize that? What does he what does he say to his son Joseph? I think it's one thing in the first dream to have your brothers bow down to you, but it's a whole nother thing to say that your parents are going to bow down to you. And maybe at that point, Jacob is taking note of that he's really um, let him get away with too much, and maybe he needs to rein him in a little bit to keep him in his place. Yeah, I think maybe he's recognizing a little bit of the error of his ways that this thing has kind of gotten off the rails now, that maybe, maybe he's starting to just get, a, that's what I think he means by that, took careful note of the matter. Maybe, maybe he's going, ah, maybe I gave him a little bit too much, you know, loose rein, or maybe I showed a little bit too much favoritism because I think at this portion, at this point in the story, and you, you can either agree or disagree and let me know. Do you think, well, let me say it this way. I'm not sure that Joseph is someone that we should be emulating. I don't think this is a wisdom story at this point. If we're reading it as a wisdom story, say, this is how you deal with dreams that God gives you. Is that fair? Or are you saying, would you disagree and say, no, we can, we can emulate him here because X, Y, or Z. Yeah, in my opinion, this seems to be showing what not to do when you get a when you get a note from God. Um, it's definitely truth, but it's not handled at all with love and recognizing the the room. <laughs> yeah, certainly wasn't reading the room for sure. Do you get the sense, uh, Luther, that um, that his tattling in verse two and the dreams in five and nine are meant to convey someone? i.e. Joseph is a bit full of themselves? Uh, either full of themselves or not. I can't really, like, it's like the kid in your class where you can't tell, are you doing this on purpose? Are you 
this ignorant of what's going on in the family dynamics that you're, or that your your dad has let you get away with so much that you think this is normal, or are you really just putting the digs in, like Phil said? Are you actually trying to like sow chaos? Yeah, Nancy, you look like you were ready to jump in. No, I'm just taking it all in. There's something, there's a dynamic missing that in my world of relationships and always thinking the best of everybody. Um, it, first off, it seems like we're missing a lot of what were they, were they putting God into this at all? I mean, did they, we can look back and go, oh, God gave that dream because X, Y, Z was going to happen, blah, blah, blah. But were they totally not putting God into it and not even considering that the dream could have anything to do with God? That's one piece of it. On anybody's part, nobody thought anything about God. And on the other hand, um, I uh, is he that is Joseph? I mean, maybe he it was that way, but it could it be that he's also somewhat just well, I don't get this. What does this mean, guys? It's weird. It goes against everything that we believe in that you would bow down to me. I don't get it. Why would I dream that? And 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 he was hammered for it. And maybe he should have been hammered for it. But what if it was, I don't know what his motive was, but what if it was more of a, this is weird. Could be. Yeah. And that's the ambiguities of a story, right? Yeah. Um, because if, if, if it's wisdom literature, you would uh, we, we treat wisdom in the West different. We would say, we'd get to the end of this and then the wisdom literature would say, now, here's the point. Here's the story and here's what you're supposed to take from it. But Eastern wisdom stories don't do that, right? And so, you know, basically what you just wrestled with, Nancy, I think is summed up in that entire, in that simple phrase, he took careful note of the matter. Like maybe in his mind, he's like, is this a God thing? What's happening here? Why is he having these dreams? I think maybe all of that's wrapped up in that. I don't know, but I get that sense as I read the story. And to add to that, um, Jacob has had similar experiences in the past with Esau in terms of inheritance. So the younger getting the inheritance over the older. So he probably has that in the back of his mind going, all right, this is not uh, typical. But same thing has happened to me before. Yep. Just now, now he's taking offense to it because, or I'm reading that he's taking offense to it because the dream now includes the sun and the moon. So, yeah. no, I, I can see that. Not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, we talked about him maybe being suspicious of his children. Um, think about, you know, he was the one who deceived his dad. So you've got this whole. You know, I wonder if they're being as deceptive to me as I was to my dad, you know, so you, you got all of this dysfunction happening all noted in that he took careful note of the matter. Now, Peter, you I see you raised your hand. What you have for us, Pete? <laughs> well, remember that later in life, he becomes a huge leader in Egypt and is uh, very capable and intelligent and wise and all of these things. And so it's possible that as a youngster, you know, as a brilliant kid uh, who's immature in relationships that, you know, he does see his sense of superiority. And uh, some of this that he's saying kind of fits in with what he thinks really is the case. You know, he really is smarter than everybody else. 
that's a that's a that's a good observation. Now the scene in our chapter now shifts from the early ones is, seems to be a, a focus on Joseph and his dreams. Now in 12 to 17, the shift is to Jacob um, and for the next few verses. And just as you, as you hear it, just give me your sense of what you think is happening in this story, all right? In this part of the story. So let me keep going at 12 through 17. Joseph's brothers went to tend their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers tending the sheep near Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said, I'm ready. Jacob said to him, go, find out how your brothers are and how the flock is and report back to me. So, so Jacob sent him from the Hebron Valley. And when he approached Shechem, a man found him wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? And Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me where they are tending the sheep. The man said, they left here. I heard them saying, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them in Dotham. So considering what we've just read in those first 11 verses, now the scene shifts. Jo Jacob has taken careful note of the matter. And what does he do? How does he follow that up? What does he do? Anybody? He continues his behavior with Joseph by sending him out to be the reporter. So either he forgot or he didn't think about it, or he said, well, maybe he does have this position over the brother. So let me send him to go out there and be the overseer of what's going on and report back. Okay. It seems, does it seem a little, you talk about not being able to read a room. Do you get the sense that Jacob's having a hard time reading the room? Because... Doesn't he send his sons out to do exactly the same thing that got them in trouble? It got him the hatred in the first place. Come back and tattletale on him. Tell me what's happening. But it, but it doesn't seem the same. This like, like in the stories of David, he was the youngest, and he didn't go out with the flock with his brothers um, back then. You know, and so it seems like maybe it would be normal for him if he was young not to go out. And he doesn't say, go tattle on them. He says, find right. out how they are. I mean, right. it seems different. It's not okay. find out what kind of a job they're doing. It's find out how they are doing and how the flock is doing. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that that's seems different fair. to me. Yeah. I don't know. So did, Nancy, do you think it was wise for him to send Joseph out to check on his sons? Well, it was typical in this family dynamic. I don't know that it was wise, but it seems typical. Okay. That's fair. By the way, Shechem is about 70 miles directly north of the Hebron Valley where, where they've settled. Shechem is, again, that place where all this terrible stuff took place with the brothers, and they're still hanging around up there, right, about 70 miles north, and it's another 15 miles up to Dothan. So in the end, it's a 95-mile journey from when he was sent. So it's, it's quite a long ways. And that's Which, different than David being sent with the lunch for his brothers, you know? Exactly. And I think that might okay. be part of the reason yeah. we need to take that in consideration, that these sons have taken the flock and they've gone a long way okay. away from the fertile land up to an area toward the mountains where you typically wouldn't bring. So there's something going here. And there's that man. Um, if you want to go back and do the research, this man who finds him in the field, who knows who the brothers are, um, 
there are a lot of theologians who believe that's a Christophany. So that's a pre-incarnate picture of uh, and either Jesus, if it's a Christophany, or an angelic being who intervenes in the situation to cause them to know where the, the brothers are. But that's open to interpretation. Hmm. Any other thoughts on, on Jacob sending Joseph out to check on his sons about what it says about his thoughts on his older sons or Joseph? I've got a question about names, mm -hmm. like uh, in verse 13, <clears throat> he's referred to as Israel, but then in 14, he's referred to back as Jacob. Yeah, it's, you know, of course, his name was changed after he, he wrestled um, with the angelic being in what, 30, what was it, 32, uh, chapter 32, Genesis 32, if I remember correctly. Um, so at this point, his, uh, in 36, we specifically have the, the accounting of his name changed. So yeah, it is interesting that he, he goes back and forth between Jacob and Israel and whether we're to read something into that, that's an interesting, uh, observation that, you know, why did he, why did he, you know, flip flack back and forth between those two names? Yeah. Any thoughts? Anybody have any thoughts on that? My best guess is that, you know, reading in the context here, it seems to be just introducing us to the concept that these two people are the same. Because part of the thing we have to remember is this, these chapters in Genesis are written post-exile. So this is literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the event. And they're writing to encouraging, you know, encouraging people um, to, you know, go and take the promised land. Here's part of the history of what's happening here. And here's how you got where you are. I think maybe more than anything, it's just connecting that part of Israel as the father of the nations. Um, but it's open to discussion. I was wondering if it was like a spiritual thing versus, you know, then, then the, the earthly or worldly daddy comes out. Could be. With the other name or something. I don't know. Just that'd be fair. Johanna. I guess when she said that, I was thinking, did we see that with Abram and Abram and Abraham? Did they go? I don't remember it going back and forth that way. Once it was changed, it that's what we refer to him as. And right. then um in the New Testament, Paul and Saul, hold on. When yeah. the name got changed, I can't remember who it was, but we, we didn't go. Yeah, we didn't go back and forth. It always, once right. it was changed, that was it. Right. And this is the only place that I remember that it's flip-flopping be, flip between the two. Right, and this is the only one of the examples that you mentioned where that name change represents a nation. So connecting Jacob to their national history of Israel, because remember, this is written after, you know, they're coming back in. This is before Josh being written the storyline leading up to Joshua and Moses's writing, telling them this story as they're preparing to go and take the land, right? So maybe making that connection um, is what's happening here. Um, so now let's move through and see if we can't finish up here because now the, the focus changes. So we've started with the focus on Joseph. Then for a short interlude, it's on Jacob slash Israel as he sends his son out. Now let's take a look. The last section is all about the brothers. So beginning in verse 18. 
And Joseph saw they, excuse me, they saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. And when Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, don't spill his blood, throw him in this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's long robe, took him and threw him into the cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. When they sat down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels carrying sweet resin, medicinal resin, and fragrant resin on their way to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he's our brother. He's family. His brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph out of the cistern. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they, bought, they brought Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and found that Joseph wasn't in it, he tore his clothes then he returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone and where can I go now? His brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the long robe, brought it to their father and said, see, we found this, it's your son's robe. See if it's your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph must have been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put a simple mourning cloth around his waist and mourned for his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters got up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, telling them, I'll go to my grave mourning for my son. And Joseph's father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph to the Egyptians, to Potiphar, Pharaoh's chief officer, commanding the royal guard. So the focus is now changed to the brothers in the last part of the text. Um, what are the various plans that the brothers come up with? What are some of the plans that the brothers come up with? There's at least two or three, aren't there? Just kill him. Yeah, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna kill him. What else? What are the other options? Throw him into a cistern and just leave him there for dead. Yeah, just leave them there, which in the end is the same thing, right? Basically, well, we're, it's, we're not going to actively kill him, so to speak. We're just going to put him in a place where he'll eventually die because he has no water, no food. All right, what else? Sell him. And we can sell him off and, and make some money. Those are the, basically the three, the three plans. So it does appear to me as though they, well, let me put it this way. It doesn't appear to me as though they had a clear plan when they threw Joseph into the cistern. In other words, they saw him coming and it brought up all of this emotion, this anger, I think it said there, um, what was the word that they used? Um, I lost it here. Um, they saw Joseph in distance before he got close to them and they plotted to kill him. So this, this rage, uh, fatricide, killing a, a brother, um, seems to be their immediate reaction, but the plans are a little bit loosey-goosey. So why do you think fratricide is their immediate reaction to seeing Joseph coming to check on them? 
that seem a little over the top? Well, they were already jealous and disliked him. And then he had those dreams and they hated those dreams and his arrogance. And now here he comes again and he's probably gonna do the same thing again. And they've had enough and they can't take it anymore. Could they have been doing something with the herd, selling it off for their own benefit and they didn't want him to report it back to dad? That's an observation too. We don't know, but that's what the story, that's the beauty of a story, right? It leaves open for us. Why exactly did they instantly go to fratricide? Like I am going to take care of this brother. We're gonna make sure he doesn't get a chance to go back and report to dad. It does open the question, right? Hmm, is there something they don't want their dad to know? Or is it just simply we're so tired of this, this brat and the favoritism of dad, we're gonna stick it to them both. I think they weren't where they were supposed to be. So that I think that was our first clue is that they weren't, they were supposed to be in one spot, but they were someplace else, which is why I agree that with Brenda, that there implies that they're doing something they're not supposed to do because they're not where they're supposed to be. And they already see, okay, here's his favorite kid and he's gonna go back and he's gonna be even more in favor with our dad while we're gonna be out of favor. And so we've got to do something to settle this. Yeah, so what sort of characters do we see Judah and Reuben? They're the brothers called out in the story. What kind of characters are Judah and Reuben as you, as you listen and, and read about them? How do you see Judah and Reuben in the story? Those are two mm -hmm. They're, They have different opinions. It sounds like Reuben was not part of the initial plan to kill him. Reuben wants to save him. It sounds like Reuben is maybe in a different area than the others. Cause it says when he came and he heard them conspiring, he was like, whoa, hold on guys. And then even later when Judah was sitting around and they're waiting, Judah is the one who's like, hey, let's not kill him. Let's sell him instead. So it sounds like there's different factions almost. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't total agreement, right? As to how are we going to treat, what are we gonna do with this Joseph? Any, any reason from your remembrances of the story about why Reuben, and by the way, Reuben's the eldest brother, why he's suddenly going out of his way to try, well, I shouldn't say suddenly, because as you said, he came by. While he's going out of his way to try and spare Joseph's life, anybody remember anything? It's, you'd have to really know your Genesis story well. But there's a story that takes place in chapter 35, a couple of chapters earlier, where Reuben committed incest by sleeping with one of his father's wives. And so he has fallen out of favor with Jacob. That's part of the backstory, right? So you could read what's happening here in verse 21 in sparing Joseph's life as an attempt to maybe get back in his father's good graces. In other words, like, hey, I've done this thing. Oh, my brothers, my younger brothers wanted to kill him. Look, I alone have saved him and bring him back. You get this sense he's going to come back later and grab him and then bring him and present him to his dad. And it's going to be like, boom, look, see, dad, I'm not this terrible person. I've redeemed myself. That's a possible reading of it, of why Reuben responds the way he does. Well, since Reuben was the older brother, he probably would have been looked upon by his dad. What, how did you let this happen also? So then that would have been two strikes against things. And, so, and 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And we don't know how, what Reuben's actions, how his brother saw what he did with one of his father's wives. They may have rejected him and said, man, we don't want to be around this guy. Look what he did to, uh, you know, one of my dad's, one of our dad's wives. Do you think Judah's, do you think Judah's attempt now, Judah's attempt to save Joseph from death is an honorable motive? Or is there something else driving his motivation there as he's thought through it? Because his, his first response was, let's kill him, right? Do you think his attempt to save Joseph from death is an, has an honorable motive? Or is there something else here? I think he's just kind of like, we might as well benefit from what's going to happen. Why would we just kill him and, and get nothing but our father being upset? If, we're, if our father's going to be upset about it, why don't we just gain something in the process? No. So there was, so you would say there's some sort of a, an ulterior motive to make money off of him. It's not altruistic. It's something else. Greed. Well, and it was the amount also. The, the 20 pieces of, of coins or, or whatever it was, that, that's a slave payment. Yep. So already they, I think he was probably already reducing him down to a slave status instead of having him being over him and he'd be bowing down to him someday kind of thing. He's just going to lower him all the way now. Yep. It's a total reversal of the dream. Huh? Let's see how you can do from a slave to, to the one that everybody bows down to. Certainly. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It, Reuben is off. If what, take it a little bit like Brenda was talking about. If the younger group had been thinking, we're going to go sell these, you know, and just abscond or leave, the older brother shows up. Suddenly that plot kind of, well, no, we better not do that anymore. And then Judah's thinking, well, crumb, let's get something out of this. You know, we're not going to sell our herd. So let's, you know, so I mean, just. You really want to get out there. <laughs> well, that's a that's a that's a fair. I think that's a pretty fair reading of it. Like they have this initial response. The older brother comes and they're like, "Oh well, we can't do that." So let's come up with Plan C, if you want to call it that, right? I find it interesting that Reuben would leave, knowing that all this is going on, and he had this plan to go back and get him, and knowing how his brothers are. It just it's interesting that he would leave, not knowing what they were going to do, and then come back and be shocked that what he said was going to happen didn't happen yeah it is odd that's that's true that is an interesting it, it really seems to be kind of opportunistic there's no uh there's no real uh direction right or consolidated thought on this matter right yeah so as we kind of wrap up the story as a whole and we'll just spend a couple of minutes with this so where do we see god or the activity of God in this story? Going back to what Nancy had said earlier, I'm wondering if they had any thought of God in there. Where do we see God or the activity of God in this story? Now, keep in mind, pretend as though we don't know what happens in 37, I mean, sorry, 38 through 50, right? I know that's hard. Lee's like, I know the rest of the story, so it's hard. But where do we see God or the activity of God in this story specifically? Let's go back to the first section in the dreams. Do we see God at work there? 
I mean, he's revealing, right? God is revealing as he often does in the first Testament specifically, and sometimes in the second, he's revealing his plan through dreams. So that's an activity. But we, all, but we only know that because of the rest of the story, and we're not supposed to be thinking about that right now. <laughs> well, we, we understand what it means because of the rest of the story, but I don't think that... Um, I mean, it doesn't seem like his brothers or his dad said, oh, Joseph had a dream from God. Let's think about this together. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, are we assuming, I guess we're assuming this dream came from God based on knowing the full story. But otherwise, do we? if we didn't know the rest of the story, would we know that? That's a good point. Good observation. Yeah. So how does he get to Egypt? The only way he gets to Egypt is through that story and the sequence of events that that set up. That's true. And specifically, if you want to add one more, and I, I'm, I'm on board with this idea that that man is a Christophany, even if he's a human being, he's obviously placed in that specific spot so that Joseph knows where to go and find his brothers. Because, I mean, from there, he, he has no idea where his brothers are. They're not where they're supposed to be. You check them. And this, this person or Christophany is sent there. You could argue that's God's direction to say, here, go find your brothers. They're over here to do what Jay said, to keep that story moving. Cause we know he eventually has to end up in Egypt. Well, God's hand was in it that he wasn't killed that the timing with his older brother and all that. So Reuben showing up at just the right moment or, the, the brother looking up and seeing interesting at the Ishmaelites. So family, he sees family. Remember, so we have Israel, the Ish, Ishmael. You have that whole storyline going on there with another favorite son, an unfavorite son. And that's the one, by the way, that prompts him to say, oh, let's sell him. Let's send him away, just like Ishmael was sent to. I mean, there's the storylines are just all these parallels are, are pretty amazing. So what's your overall reaction to the story? And what does that reveal about us? What's your overall reaction to the story? And what does it reveal about us? I mean, I would say we're definitely not at a feel good story. Um, like that's that um, Disneyfication where we want a, a nice clean three act play um, and this one is a long slow play out of incredibly bad things happening um, which makes it almost even more dissatisfying to know that you have to wait until you know Joseph has to go through the worst of the worst and whether that's you know sharpening him like iron or not these are horrible things that happen yeah we like our stories to have happy endings and this part of the story where he ends up at the end of 37 in prison, I'm sorry, at the end of uh, 37 in prison, isn't the happy story, yeah. So that reveals to us our desire to have things work out neatly and that we can point and say, here's what happened and here's how it worked out perfectly. Yeah, good. What else? It's hard, it's, uh, it's hard to separate it from the from knowing the story 
but I've always, you know, always and forever since I've heard the story, taken it as, well, bad things, horrible things might happen, but God has a plan and God will bring his plan to fruition for good, no matter what. And so it's this hopeful, no matter what happens and how horrible and awful it is, hang in there because God has plans. And so it's really hard for me to separate that and look at it right. objectively for today, for right now. All right, that's fair. Anybody I else? think it also gives us an opportunity to um, for God to show us what happens in families when you have these favoritisms and how things are, when we talk about generational curses, how things are passed down and gives us an opportunity to really take a look at how far it can go and to kind of keep us to think think that through before we start picking and choosing favorites. Yeah. So you think it would be fair to us to say that as as a as a whole, part of our reaction to the story is that we're very uncomfortable with the favoritism and the family dynamic shown between Jason, Jacob and his sons. Is that a fair statement? Yes. That we're uncomfortable, at the very least, with that. Yeah, I often wonder about like this seems like. God working in spite of the family. And I wonder what the whole story would have looked like if there'd been a unified family where Jacob was leading and training his sons up in a moralistic idea. And then they still all ended up in Egypt ahead of the curve, all of them down there instead of being rescued. Yeah. We often tell this as a rescue story, but it also looks like a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah, yeah well said, well said. One last yeah. question. Go ahead. Somebody, somebody was talking. Well, I would say I find the hope, no matter where we find ourselves, God's redemption story is going to take place. No matter how muddled it looks, no matter how hopeless it looks, his plans, like Nancy was saying, is going to happen, period. Yeah. So as we wrap it up, remember the original audience for Genesis 37 was the Exodus community of Israel. So this is the people who have been freed from Pharaoh. We did the Pharaoh story this morning. I won't sing the Pharaoh song, so it won't be an earworm in your ear like it'll be in mine for the rest of the day. Um, but this Exodus community of Israel, right? It's they're in the wilderness. They're waffling between following Yahweh toward the promised land or returning to slavery in Egypt. That's the context in which this story is being told to its original audience. So what significance might they find in this story, i.e. the original hearers? Maybe I should have asked that one first, but I kind of liked it as the wrap-up question. So what significance do they find in this story that directly relates to where they are waffling? Do we go to the promised land or do we go back to Egypt? I think that it shows that if they follow God all the way through, it may look bad now, but if you follow it all the way through, because I'm sure that they didn't stop where we stopped, they went through the whole end of the story, that if you follow it all the way through, then God has an opportunity to work it out for your good. But if you stop at this point and go back, then you're going back to the same um, place that you were and you don't give God the opportunity to intervene and work. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. 
We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.